0: right? That's all it means. We're, we're human. Okay. Uh, let's get to John, shall we? Uh, a while back, I think it's been a few years, but one of my daughters uh, read a book called The Bridge to Terabinthia, and I remember uh, her telling me, this is the worst book I don't know if any of you have ever read it, spoiler alert, you know, the main character dies in the end and, you know, it's just kind of a a sad book. And I remember her saying to me, you know, what's the point? Why even write a book like this? It's just not even fun, you know? Nothing works out in the end. Uh, Now, that's a good question to ask of a book, right? What's the point? Uh, Why was it written? Of course, there's Plenty of bad and seemingly pointless books out there, but no one really writes a book without a purpose. Some write books for information, uh, like textbooks or uh, instruction manuals, you know, some of the most riveting reading you'll find. Uh, Other books uh, teach you how to do things, like how to install a ceiling fan or how to bake a killer chocolate chip cookie. Others in academia professors uh, have to write books because their jobs depend on it. They either publish or they perish. Others write for fame or for attention we 've been spending a lot of time in john 's gospel together. Uh, I began preaching John back in January of twenty two Today is my fifty second sermon in John covering twenty chapters and so uh, if, if you want to catch up, they're all online. If you missed a few, uh, they're there for you. Uh, but many scholars agree um, that the close of chapter 20, which we'll be looking at today, is really the, the true ending of John's gospel, and that chapter 21 is really an, an epilogue of sorts and ties up some loose ends. And it's here at the end of chapter 20 where, where John tells us plainly why he wrote this gospel. So let's take a look together. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 24 to 31. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1078. Uh, And if this text looks familiar to you and feels like deja vu, uh, it's because we read this text or much of it last week. Uh, So I'll be rereading the verses from last week's sermon uh, and just continue on to include verses 30 and 31. This will make sense uh, as I proceed uh, further in the sermon. But okay, if you're there, uh, I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you're able and follow along with me as I read. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Pray with me. Oh Lord, Psalm 119, 161 says, Princes, persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Some of us have come to your word today figuratively beat up from living in a world broken by sin this week. May we, as this psalmist writes, be able to still rejoice at your word this morning like people who have found a great treasure even in the midst of difficult circumstances, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so the reason that I reread the text from last week, in addition to the uh, the, the new stuff for this week, is because uh, there's, there's some unfinished business with Thomas uh, in that text that directly relates to to the two verses of our new text. And in answering the question of why John wrote this gospel, a big part of that answer comes to us when we answer the question, why did the risen Jesus show himself to Thomas? So this is my first point. We're gonna talk about why Thomas. And then we'll ask why John's gospel. And then finally, we'll answer the question, uh, why can we trust it at all? Okay? So why Thomas? Why this gospel? And then finally, why can we trust it? I don't know if uh, last week you found it a bit strange that the resurrected Jesus physically showed himself to Thomas and then immediately goes on to say, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. It kind of makes you wonder, well, why did, why did Jesus show himself to Thomas in the first place and then go on to say, you know, blessed are those who believe without seeing? Why is that? Well, the key to understanding this, I think, is what John reminds us of in verse 23 when he says, now Thomas, one of the twelve. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus first came. This is significant. Okay, John is reminding us that Thomas is one of the twelve that Jesus chose to be apostles. Have you ever noticed uh, or wondered uh, what that title, apostle, means? An apostle is someone who is sent as a messenger. Remember what Jesus told the other disciples when he appeared to them the first time when Thomas was absent. In verse 21, he tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's making them apostles because he's sending them as his messengers. But they're not just any messengers. These are special messengers because they are eyewitnesses to the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is one of the chief criteria for being a New Testament apostle. They must have seen the risen Jesus. It's a requirement. We see this plainly in Acts 1 when the apostles are choosing someone to replace Judas as one of the twelve. And notice the criteria Look at verse 21 of chapter 1 in, in Acts. So one of the men who have accompanied, uh, accompanied us uh, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, being uh, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, ready for it, a witness to his resurrection. So an apostle is a sent messenger. Uh, But specifically in the New Testament, an eyewitness sent messenger. And Jesus uh, had uh, seen fit and had chosen these 12. So yes, Jesus appears to Thomas and he believes, but Jesus didn't need to appear to Thomas in order for him to believe. But he did need to appear to Thomas if he was going to serve as an apostle an eyewitness messenger sent by Jesus. But why is it so important for us, uh, or for Jesus rather, to send these eyewitness messengers? Why is that important? It's because by design, this is how Jesus planned that his church would grow and spread through eyewitness testimony. Look at what Jesus said about his soon-to-be eyewitness messengers in John chapter 17 when he's praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Already in John chapter 17, Jesus had it in mind that these would be eyewitnesses uh, that would uh, tell the good news of the gospel to others as eyewitnesses. So you see, it was always part of Jesus' plan that the Christian faith would be built on and spread by eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And Thomas would go on to do just that, beginning, uh, being the the first uh, to bring the good news of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, to India. By God's grace, we now have the testimony of these eyewitnesses written down for us in the New Testament. So even today, how does a person come to faith in Jesus? How does Jesus build his church today? It's no different. It's through the eyewitness testimony that we have written down for us in the New Testament. By God's grace, we, we have this written down for us. What a privilege. And while these 12... Uh, Plus the apostle Paul later on were capital A apostles sent as messengers to tell others about Jesus. We too are apostles but with a lowercase a sent with the same message pointing people to the eyewitness testimony Right, We can't testify as eyewitnesses but we can point to that testimony as lowercase a apostles. The only difference is uh, that we're not eyewitnesses. Instead, uh, we are to share the written message of these eyewitnesses in the New Testament. But what does all this have to do with John and his purpose for writing this gospel? Let me answer this question in my second point. Why, why John's gospel? Why this gospel? Well, just as Thomas was chosen and sent by Jesus to be an eyewitness messenger, so too was John. Listen to what John writes in uh, his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1. We read, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice how many times in these three verses, John emphasizes and repeats the fact that the message he proclaims is something that he saw with his own eyes, that he, that he touched with his hands, that he heard with his own ears. And this is why he wrote this gospel. He was sent. He was sent by Jesus to tell others what he saw that they may believe. Uh, Look at what he tells us in verse 31. Everything he writes is for the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is being faithful to his calling as a capital A apostle, an eyewitness by writing down his testimony Let's dig a little bit deeper into this now. What what does John want us to believe? First, John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament, uh, everything that it promised in a Savior, is fulfilled in Jesus. And many of the Jews missed this because they were looking for a political Savior to save them from Roman oppression. But they're thinking too small. Their problem was much bigger than Rome and their problem was much broader than them. Their problem was their sin and it was a problem for the whole world, not just the Jewish people. And the solution to the world's biggest problem would not be solved by military might and power. It would be solved by humility, and weakness, and suffering, and death. Death. This is what John tells us Jesus did when he died on the cross to pay for our sins, and to give us life. This is why John 3.16 is such a precious verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Secondly, uh, John wants us to know that Jesus was not just any human messiah but that he was god in the flesh the very son of god john tells us in chapter one that the word became flesh and dwelt among us why is this important because only only a perfect human could take our place on the cross and pay our debt with his blood and this is exactly what jesus did he lived a perfect life pleasing to god and he offered up his perfect life as payment for our sin. But to believe is not simply to affirm certain intellectual facts about Jesus. To believe is to trust. To believe is to rely on him. Uh, like if you were going skydiving, my, my friend Stopher recently went Skydiving. And uh, you had to put 100% of your trust in that parachute, didn't you? Uh, if that parachute didn't open up and prevent you uh, from making contact with the earth, you'd become a pancake. And you didn't put most of your trust in that parachute, and like 10% maybe, and how fast you could flap your arms, you know? It was 100%, Right? 100% in that parachute. And, and it's no different for us trusting Jesus. We're all speeding toward the earth, speeding toward Judgment Day, and we need someone to save us. And we can't, there's no flapping your arms fast enough. There's nothing you can do. You've got to put your trust in someone to do it for you, you've got to put your trust in Jesus to be your parachute. It's the same way with Jesus. We, we can't contribute anything towards saving ourselves. We, we've got to fully rely on him. This is the kind of belief that John wants for us. This is the kind of belief that his eyewitness testimony has been purposely written down for. And John doesn't just want us to believe as if that's the end game. He's not trying to up his recruitment numbers for the Jesus fan club. No, belief is not John's end goal. It's that by believing you may have life. Life in his name. That's the end goal. John wants life for you. Not life as in just the absence of death or the state of existence. Have you ever just felt like alive clinically Like you have a pulse and you're breathing. There's signs of brain activity, but you just don't feel like you're really living. You ever been there? John says, uh, or Jesus says in John uh, 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus died for you, not to give you a life that just lasts forever to fill eternity, but to give you an abundant quality of life. And the best thing about this life is that you don't have to wait for it, for Jesus to return, for you to have it. He gives it to you now, the moment you start believing, the moment you start trusting, that life is available to you now. Now at this point, maybe you're thinking, this really sounds like good news. I hope so. Because it is, but could it all be just too good to be true? I mean, if, if all this is based on eyewitness testimony from uh, over 2,000 years ago, how can we be sure that, these, that we can even trust these eyewitnesses? This is my final point. This is the last question we'll wrestle with today. How can we know we can trust it? Last week we talked about skeptics and saw how Thomas came from disbelief to belief, well, some skeptics today question whether we can even trust these eyewitness accounts. First of all, what if, what if they weren't telling the truth? To answer this, let's consider some of the common motives that people have for lying. There's generally three categories or motives for lying. Money, sex... And, power. and more generally, we could say that people lie in order to gain some benefit for themselves. Well, this is, is this true of the apostles? Is this true of John in particular? Well, to claim that Jesus was God as a, as a devout Jew, to claim that Jesus was God would fly in the face of everything they'd been raised to believe in Judaism. To even make this claim, they would have been labeled, or they were labeled, heretics, shunned from their Jewish families and their entire Jewish community for, for making this claim that Jesus is the Son of God. And if they knew it was a lie, it would have meant, as a faithful Jew, if, if they know they're lying, this would have meant eternal damnation for their souls ostracization from their family and from their community, eternal damnation for a lie, it doesn't make sense. Add to this the fact that instead of gaining any kind of political power, they were hated, put in prison, tortured, and many of them were martyred. As for any wealth to be gained, listen to what Hebrews 10.34 has to say about the early Christians. We read, uh, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you, knew that it was, since you knew that you yourselves had a better and abiding one. Far from gaining any kind of money, sex, or power, the apostles uh, and many other followers of Christ lost in all these areas. It doesn't make sense that they would lie. Chuck Colson used to tell people that the Watergate scandal is what convinced him that Christianity is true. Because if a small handful of the world's most powerful men with countless resources at their disposal couldn't keep quiet about the Watergate scandal for more than a few days without one of them cracking, how is it that these disciples were willing to face imprisonment, torture, the plundering of their property, and even death for the rest of their lives, and not a single one of them ever recounted. They remained steadfast in their belief in the resurrected Jesus, who is the Son of God. Not a single one of them recounted. Simply put, no one dies for what they know is a lie. Okay, so maybe now you skeptics are uh, thinking maybe they didn't lie. How do we know that someone didn't come along later, you know, centuries later, uh, and alter their eyewitness accounts in order to gain some measure of money, sex, and power for themselves? How do we know that these records have been accurately kept? I mean, it's been over 2,000 years, right? Well, to answer this, you need to know something, you need to understand something about the reliability of the manuscripts that we do have. You see, fairly early on, copies of these eyewitness accounts were being made. And today, we have uh, over 6,000 manuscript copies. And a few of them date very close to the date of the original writing. And when you take all these copies and you compare them against one another, you only find differences that you would expect from handwritten copies, mostly very minor uh, copy errors that don't change any major claims or doctrines of the Christian faith. And by comparing all, all these 6,000 manuscript copies, we can, we can tell where the, where the mistakes were made by comparing them all against one another. You know, sometimes uh, someone will make that claim, you know, I can't believe because the, the Bible has been, you know, there's so many errors or mistakes in it, right? Uh, ask them, show me one. You, which one are you most concerned about? You know, let's let's look at it together. Uh, 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, well, I, I don't, you know, they maybe heard it on the internet or watched some guy on YouTube say it, right? They're not going to be able to tell you. But you know what? You can show them. If you have a good modern translation, there's a footnote every place where there's a variant uh, between the manuscripts. And you can say, hey, let's open our Bible Say, I'll show you some, you know, and let's see if they're significant. They're not. None of them alter anything uh, that ch- would change any uh, significant Christian doctrine. And some might say, hey, well, it's, it's just an elaborate uh, telephone game. You ever play that game as kids, the telephone game? You start off with a message, you kind of whisper it in someone's ear, and it goes around the room, and uh, it ends up being something entirely different, right? So uh, some may claim that, oh, it's like the telephone game. Well, it's not. It's not anything like the telephone game, because what you have with the New Testament manuscripts is, uh, just imagine with me for a moment, right? It's not just one copy that was copied linearly, right, over... Uh, 2,000 years, right, you have, uh, let's just say, 10 copies, right, and copies were made of those copies, and they were spread geographically all over the world, right, and now you have copies all over the world spreading from multiple copies, and when we compare those against each other, we find the same thing. There's very little differences in these, these manuscripts, For someone to change them, they would have had to find every thread of these manuscripts. They would have had to find every thread, geographically speaking, and change all of them. That takes a lot of faith to believe that. Now come back to uh, the broader question we asked at this point. Why, Why can we trust John's gospel? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. Uh, How how does this compare? How do the the records compare to other ancient historical documents that we have? Well, I'll I'll tell you that no other ancient historical event, uh, the manuscript evidence for it, even comes close to two things, the number of manuscripts and the, the proximity to the original writing. No other ancient historical event comes even close making the New Testament the most historically reliable ancient uh, document in in existence. It's not even close. All right, so because the overwhelming evidence points to the fact that John was telling the truth and that the manuscript collection makes it nearly impossible that that John's original account was altered— Let's wrap this up by taking one last look at John's text. John, as we said before, is a faithful apostle. He's written down uh, 20 chapters to this point of eyewitness testimony. Seven of the signs or miracles that Jesus did while he walked the earth, culminating in the most spectacular sign of all, his resurrection from the dead. And all these signs point to the fact that Jesus is the risen christ the very son of god John's other major theme is is that of belief and John has shown us a variety of people who have all confessed Jesus is the christ the son of god and this all culminated with Thomas's great confession that we looked at last week my lord and my god so let me ask you in this 50-second sermon I've preached on John's gospel, which is written for the very purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you're still on the fence, why? If you're still on the fence today, let me just tell you, stop disbelieving and believe. Make today the day you stop merely existing and you start truly living. Put your trust in Jesus, all of it, 100% trust Jesus to save you because he died and rose again to pay for all of your sin and to give you life. Trust Jesus. Stop disbelieving and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is so rich, powerful. Father, pray that your word would convict us today of any disbelief. Father, may uh, these truths uh, shore up and in- encourage those who are already believing that we may believe more fervently and more passionately, that we may uh, enjoy more of that life you died to give us. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to do for us what none of us could ever have done for ourselves by dying in our place, bearing the full weight of your wrath poured out against our sin to give us life. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.